0: So let's hear God's word, Uh, Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Okay, so we're doing a, um, a very small series on uh, the topic of worship <clears throat> uh, from the Psalms. And when it comes to worshipping God, what is it that we need more than anything else that will cause us to fall down before God in worship? What is it more than anything else that will reorder our hearts so that, so that we love and adore God more than anything else? What do we need? We need to know the holiness of God. The holiness of God. And that's what this psalm is about. See, we need to get a grasp of what it means that our God is holy. And this psalm gives uh, that to us. It actually gives it to us in three parts. You would have noticed the three sections pretty easily because each one ends with a statement that God is Holy. So verse 3, holy is he. Verse 5, holy is he. And then verse 9, the Lord our God is holy. And see, so each of the sections that are in this psalm, they actually give us a different perspective on what God's holiness is. So in verses 1 to 3, we have the perspective of God's holiness, uh, which is about his greatness. And then in verses 4 and 5, we have the perspective Of God's holiness as righteousness. And then in verses 6 to 9, we get the perspective of His graciousness. And what we see in this psalm, you actually need all three perspectives to really know God. You need to know His greatness, His righteousness, and His graciousness. And uh, the other thing though, this psalm, it's not just written to inform our theology. Okay, it would be tragic if we just went out from here today thinking, well, at least I know God better. No, no, the psalm, what is the purpose of this psalm? That we would worship. That our lives would be completely reordered so that we are no longer at the center, but God is. Okay, that every day we would see that I exist not for me, not for my desires, but for God and His desires. That's what worship is. And so that's the purpose of this psalm. So we need to let each of these perspectives on God's holiness transform our lives so that we would indeed worship uh, the Lord. Uh, Let's let this psalm do that for us. So let's look at these three sections then. So first we see God's holiness is his greatness. It's his greatness. That's in verses 1 to 3. It says, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. So, notice the emphasis of this section. It's showing us that God's holiness has to do with how He is so much greater than anything else in the entire universe. And the psalm captures that by talking about God as the king over everything and over everyone. It says, the Lord reigns. Okay, That means God is the king. Uh, It says, let the peoples tremble. He sits in thrones. See, there's that enthronement language. That's kingship language. Upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. And see, the trembling and the quaking that God's reign causes is because he is not some small God. He's not some tribal deity. He's not some imagination of the human mind. He's not invented. He is God. Okay? He's the God who created everything. The God who therefore rules over everything. There's no escaping this God. Now you can spend your life ignoring God and avoiding God. But in the end, you will find that all of the ignorance was in fact rebellion because he reigns. He's the king. He's the rightful king. And therefore, we can't ignore him. See this declaration, the Lord reigns. It's not a distant declaration. It's not something way over there. It's not a private declaration. It's not something that we just have... You know, in a church building or at home, in, our, in the privacy of our quiet time. The Lord reigns is this universal declaration that this is who God is. And everyone needs to listen. Everyone needs to bow down. Everyone needs to heed this call because God reigns over all. <clears throat> then in verse 2, we see that God's universal reign had a very personal aspect to it. So, you know The Bible always talks about God being everywhere, reigning over all things, and yet there's a sense in which his reign can be found personally, even in a particular location. And uh, in verse 2 it says, the Lord is great in Zion, and Zion of course was uh, another name for um, Jerusalem, and it's a name that's usually connected to Jerusalem, uh, given that God actually dwelled there in a special way. Uh, in the temple. okay, in, in Jerusalem, there was a temple. Uh, the temple resembled a king's palace. And at the heart of the temple was a throne room. And in that throne room was a footstool called the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, that, that's what that reference is um, there in verse 1 about being enthroned upon the cherubim. And that place, back then, was considered... Almost like the meeting point between heaven and earth, you know, where God Himself dwelled. And uh, of course, the Israelites—none of them thought, you know, God was confined to that building. Um, Remember when Solomon prayed that prayer of dedication of the temple, and he said, "You know, the whole heavens can't even contain God. How much less this building?" So no one thought God was confined to the building. They—they knew He reigned everywhere, and yet there was a sense in which. They could personally encounter him in the temple. And so the Lord is great in Zion, but then it says in verse 2, He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. And it's all summed up with this, this refrain, holy is he. So you can see how the psalm connects God's holiness to his kingship to show us what it means that God is holy. That's actually not the the only time the Bible does that. Uh, That vision we read in Isaiah, again, it connected God's kingship with his holiness. Because what did Isaiah see when when he got that vision into heaven? He saw, what was it? The Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah got this incredible vision that God is the king. And then there were these uh, seraphim calling, and what were they calling? Were they calling, "Hail the king, Hail the king!" Hail No." They were calling "Holy, holy, holy. He's the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. And again, you see that in revelation, another vision, and it connects God's kingship with His holiness. And the reason the Bible does this is so that we understand what it means that God is holy. See, often when we think about God's holiness, we only think of it in a very narrow sense. We think of God's holiness as his moral purity. And that is part of it, but that's not the primary meaning of God's holiness. The primary meaning of God's holiness is his majesty, his greatness, uh, the idea that he is the king. And, uh, you know, think about the image of a king. See, so if someone's a king, it means that they are set apart from everyone else. So if you meet a king, that's royalty. And what's everyone else? Common folk. Okay, that's the idea of, with a king. And, and that actually helps us to see what God's holiness means because God's holiness captures the idea that he is set apart from everything else, all of creation, is separate to God. He he's he's completely apart from it. Okay, God's holiness is really his his otherness. Uh, the fact that He alone is God. You know, we sometimes talk about the um, creator creature distinction, which is very helpful to think about. You know, the fact that God alone is infinite, and everything else is finite, or God alone is eternal, and everything else has a beginning. Or God alone is self-existent and everything else derives its existence from God. See, that's why nothing compares to God. And that's the primary meaning of God's holiness. God's holiness refers to the fact that he is distinct from everything and that he is above everything. And so you can sum that up by saying God's holiness is his greatness. God's greatness. Uh, in fact, one of the intriguing things um, about Isaiah's vision, remember how the, the seraphim were flying around and they're calling out, holy, holy, holy? And they had six wings. You know, with two, they're flying, two, they covered their feet, and two, they covered their faces. Why were they covering their faces? Why is it that the seraphim, who were sinless, glorious creatures, how come they didn't feel worthy to look upon the Lord? It's because they are creatures. And there's no way a creature, a mere creature, no matter how glorious the creature might be, there's no way a creature can can look upon the Creator. Just not worthy. That's what God's holiness is capturing. See, he's so much greater than we can ever imagine. Uh, We sang in that first song, No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight but downward bends his burning eye at mysteries so bright. Haven't you ever wondered what that means? It's it's, it's talking about Isaiah's vision. that Not not even a glorious creature like an angel feels worthy to look upon the Lord because he is holy. So that's God's holiness, his greatness. And we can see here that this, this is not the way we generally think about God. Now, if you were to ask the average person, you know, tell me what you think God is like, most people tend to think God is pretty much just like us, but just a little bit more powerful, or just like us, maybe a little bit more smarter, or just like us, although a lot bigger. Uh, But here we see, no, no, God is hes nothing like us. (laughs) He is completely different, completely separate, uh, in fact, when we talk about God's bigness or greatness or, or power, I mean, we're talking about things that... Here's some concepts that in our minds don't even stretch to capture how great God is. We can't fully comprehend God. You know, when we talk about God's greatness, we're, we're only thinking of greatness in finite ways because that's all we can do as finite creatures. Now, this doesn't mean we can't know God at all. God has revealed Himself to us. We can know Him truly by believing what He has revealed. But we cannot know God exhaustively. And therefore, all true knowledge of God always gets to a point where it just breaks into awe and wonder and astonishment. That's how you know that you're starting to understand God. That's how you know you're starting to encounter Him, when your knowledge of Him just breaks out into awe and astonishment and wonder. In fact, you know you've encountered God when when the things that this psalm talks about happens to you. Did you notice those words? Tremble, quake, Uh, let them praise your, your great and awesome name. Praise and awe. See, trembling awe, quaking. It's saying that God's holiness, on the one hand, it's utterly terrifying because of who God is. And yet at the same time, it's completely thrilling. It's almost like if, um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you know, if lightning strikes the ground just a short distance away from you, you know the reaction you have? It's absolutely terrifying. And yet at the same time, it's absolutely thrilling. You know, you don't know whether to laugh or cry. Uh, but, but that's what it's like to encounter God. It is terrifying and yet absolutely thrilling at the same time. Uh, that's that's the, the trembling and quaking and the praise and awe. Um, but what does it do? It completely humbles you because you realize that compared to him, you are so small. And that's how you know you're starting to encounter God when you encounter Him in, in His holiness. And that's really what we should be expecting uh, pretty much every time when we get together like this. You know, Here we come each Lord's Day. Why do we come? To worship. And so when we come, we should be expecting just to get a sense of God's holiness. You know, to, to have that feeling of being humbled before Him, realizing that He is God, I'm not God, you're not God, He alone is God. Okay, And so that's what this psalm has to do for us. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So that's the first thing. We see God's holiness in his greatness, the greatness of his um, majesty. Now, second, though, we also see God's holiness in his righteousness. God's righteousness. And that's in verses uh, 4 and 5 let's read that. It says, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Okay, so the first point established that the primary meaning of God's holiness is his greatness, that he is distinct from everything, that he's above everything. But here's another aspect of it. That God's holiness does actually mean his moral purity. The fact that he is righteous and just. They're the words that this section uses. And so this is saying that because God is holy, he always acts in the right way. He always and only does what is right. Okay, all of his judgments are always just. He uses the word, uh, uh, what is that word? Uh, uh, sorry, equity, not inequity, equity. Uh, Equity means fairness. See, everything God does is fair. Uh, He's always true to who he is. He's always faithful to his word. He can't break a promise because he is righteous. God is fair in his judgments and he never overreacts. He never underreacts. He always administers perfect justice. God can't overlook an evil. Because he is just, therefore he always punishes all wrongdoing. Everything he does is right, and the reason God only does what is right is because of who he is—that he is holy. And it's, it's helpful to think about that: you know, justice and righteousness are not independent uh, standards that exist separately to God. You now, it's not as if God has to submit to standards that exist independently of Him. It's not like that at all. God is the standard. See, He is righteous. He is just. And that's why it's impossible for God to do anything other than what is right. You know, sometimes we say God can do everything, or God can do anything. No, that's not true. There are some things God can't do. He can't can't act contrary to His nature. He can't do evil. He can't be evil because he is holy. He can't do wrong. He can't be unfair. He can't be unfaithful. He can't ignore injustice. He can't just sweep things under the carpet and pretend they didn't happen because of who he is, because he is holy, because he is righteous and just. And that's why when we hear this statement, look at this statement in verse 4. The king is in his might... Loves justice. Now, that, that is such an incredible statement about God. I don't know if you realize what it's trying to say. See, the king in his might loves justice. Maybe one way to think about it is um, you, know, you know that statement by, I think it was um, Lord um, Acton or something, uh, and he made that statement power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's really, that's the experience that so many people have um, when it comes to power. You know, you give someone a position of power, give someone increased authority, give someone, uh, you know, a position of power, and what happens? Corruption creeps in. And people then use that power, use that authority for self-promotion. And, uh, you know, the news is filled with that every single day. People with power, using their power to crush the weak. Or people using positions of power to manipulate systems and manipulate companies and manipulate uh, people even for um, self-promotion. You know, you read of companies making profits at the expense of the rights of their workers and at the expense of local environments. And, uh, you know, we read constantly of cases of abuse. All of this. What is it? It's power that's been corrupted. And so the statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, it seems to be true until we realize, no, it's not true. Because what is absolute power other than God himself? And what does verse 4 say about God's power? Okay? The Lord, the King, in his might, that's absolute power. Love's justice. See, God, he has all the power, but what does he do with it? He only uses it for good. He only does what is right and just. There is no hint of corruption in God. And this is something that Israel knew from experience because verse 4 goes on to say that uh, God has executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And so the Israelites they had so many experiences of God's justice and righteousness. You know, some of them, those experiences were against them because of their own injustice. Um, but God's dealings with people in time, in history, always has been right and just. Always will be right and just. And that's why when you read through the Bible, you constantly see God dealing With evil, dealing with injustice. Now, when you read through the prophets, uh, you're just reading over and over again of uh, messages of doom, messages of judgment—judgment on nations, nations that oppress weaker nations, judgment on leaders, leaders who use their authority in corrupt ways. Uh, God, God says stuff like He He absolutely hates the ruler. Who accepts a bribe. He hates the ruler who perverts justice. Because that just goes against everything God is. You see, God, you know, He has a particular concern for the vulnerable, you know, the, the orphan, the widow. He has concern for them. And God punishes all those who are unjust, all wrongdoing. See, every wrong will be righted. Why? Because the Lord reigns and this king loves justice. And so that that also is what it means that God is holy. And so when we get a sense of that, God's greatness, God's righteousness, does anyone here feel intimidated by that? It does make us feel intimidated. I mean, we tremble before God as his creatures, but we tremble even more before him as sinners. Because we realize that God cannot tolerate evil. No evil at all. He can't ignore any of it. That's intimidating. That's actually terrifying. This is why when Isaiah got that vision of God's holiness, what did he cry out? Did he cry out, wow, look at that? No, he said, woe, woe is me. Because God's holiness to Isaiah was kind of like a you know, a burning white flame that was so bright that it exposed everything in Isaiah. He could see himself more clearly than he'd ever seen himself before, and he realized that he was sinful to the core. And so he was terrified by God's holiness. You see the same thing in Job when he gets a vision of God, and he and he says, "Now my eyes see you; therefore I despise myself." and repent in dust and ashes. Uh, Same reaction in Peter, the first time he really realized who Jesus was. And he said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And so there's a sense in which God's holiness actually should terrify us because of our sin. And so none of us should actually assume that we have come to know God until it's done that. Until we have got to that point where we realize, like Isaiah, woe is me. And like Peter, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Okay? Until that's happened, you actually haven't encountered God. You haven't come to know the true and living God. See, when verse 5 says, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, that word exalt, it means to lift up high. And the word worship literally means to lie down flat on the dust. And it's saying that our view of God has to go up. And our view of ourselves must go down. And that's what God's holiness does. And only then, only when we have that fear of God, that sense of trembling, only then have we actually come to meet Him. Have we encountered Him truly? Because holy is He. So God's holiness is His greatness. God's holiness is His righteousness. But that's not all the psalm tells us, thankfully. Otherwise, we'd all be running away and going home uh, out of terror. No, no, God's... The third thing we see in this psalm is God's holiness is also seen in His grace or His graciousness. Uh, The God who is terrifying because of His greatness and righteousness He is also the God who out of his grace has done something so that sinners can approach him, so that sinners can be welcomed into his presence, can be embraced by him, so that we can know him and serve him and enjoy him without being destroyed. And we see that in verses 6 to 9. Let's uh, read those verses. It says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests, Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. So here we can see people, in fact sinners, living in relationship with God. People communicating with God, you know, praying to Him, being heard. Pe- people that God spoke to. People that God gave His statutes to and they kept them. That's like living in a relationship, obeying Him. People who God forgave and yet an avenger of their wrongdoing. So here we can see that, that God, He's made a way for sinners to live in relationship with Him but in such a way that doesn't compromise His holiness. Okay, because we've learned from the psalm that God must punish our sin. He can't just ignore it. He has to punish it. But God He's made a way to punish our sin without punishing us. God has made a way to forgive our sin while still upholding his justice. And how has he done that? Well, it's actually hinted in the very next line, or the last line, where it says, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Now, holy mountain, why is that the place to worship at? You know, why is it that the holy mountain is the only place where sinners can approach God without being destroyed? Well, when the psalm was written, the holy mountain was the place of the temple. And that's what we've been seeing all through this psalm. Now, here's a psalm celebrating God's holiness. But where, where did the psalmist experience God's holiness? At the temple. See, verse 1, God's enthroned upon the cherubim. That was in the temple. Verse 5, worship at his footstool. Where was the footstool? It was in the temple in the Holy of Holies. Uh, The footstool was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you are here with us when we went through 1 Samuel, I'm pretty sure you'll remember the Ark of the Covenant because it featured so much in 1 Samuel. Remember, it's that golden box um, about so big, and on each end of it were carved these cherubim, uh, had a gold, or it was covered in gold, it had a lid called the mercy seat and once a year the high priest would go into the holy of holies carrying the blood of a sacrifice and he would approach the ark of the covenant and sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat and that blood sprinkled on there that pointed to the fact that the sin of the people had been dealt with okay blood had been shed Justice had been done because, remember, the wages of sin is death. A death had occurred. And yet it was a death in the place of the sinner so that the sinner could be forgiven. And that's incredible because what it shows us is that the very place that most communicated God's holiness is the very place of salvation for sinners. I'll say that again. The very place, you know, like no other, that communicated that God is holy. That's the place where you find forgiveness for sin. It's incredible. And so all through this psalm, here's a psalm that celebrates God's holiness, and yet what is it? It's a psalm that's constantly celebrating the gospel, that there is forgiveness, that there is a way for sinners to be made right with this holy God and to live with him and to enjoy him, to be able to worship him. And the only way that can happen, the only way we can draw near to a holy God, is through a sacrifice. And what is our sacrifice? What is the sacrifice that we need to draw near to God? It is, of course, Jesus himself. See, all of those sacrifices in the temple, even the temple itself, all pointed to the Lord Jesus who on that cross, he bore God's righteous judgment against our sin so that we can be forgiven. See, that's how God can forgive our sin while still maintaining his justice. He did it by punishing our sin in Jesus. And so the moment you put your trust in Christ, all of your sins are forgiven. And that's therefore how we make this psalm our psalm. See, when the psalm calls us to worship at the holy mountain or to worship at the footstool, how do we do that? We do that by coming to Jesus. We do that by trusting in Christ. That's why we can't come to God in worship unless we come through Jesus. In fact, it's not just the place of worship that points us to Jesus here, but so do those three men in verse 6. See, Moses and Aaron and Samuel, what's so special about those guys? You know, why did God listen to them? It's because they were all intercessors, which means that they all prayed on behalf of the people. You know, Moses, he prayed on behalf of the people after that golden calf incident when all of the Israelites turned away from God and God was going to come down in judgment on them and Moses intervened and he prayed, no God, blot me out instead of them. And God listened to Moses. And then Aaron, Aaron was the high priest. He was the one who actually offered that blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And God listened to Aaron's prayer based on the sacrifice. Samuel, again, he prayed on behalf of the people. After the people had rejected the Lord as their king, then they turned back. Samuel prayed to the Lord and God listened. God was a forgiving God to them. He listened to the intercessor. And see Hebrews 7.25, it says of Jesus, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. See Moses, Aaron, Samuel, the sacrifice, it all pointed to Christ. And that's why it's only through Jesus that we can come and approach a holy God, and know that we won't be destroyed, but rather welcomed in. And it's because of Jesus that the tune of this psalm is not one of terror. Like if we were putting music to this psalm, we wouldn't put doom music. We would put rejoicing. We would put uh, you know, a tone of uh, you know, excitement. Um, I don't know how you do that. I'm not a musician like that. But, but it's about awe and wonder. Because the terror of God's holiness has been taken away at the cross so that we can now have God's holiness in awe and wonder. And so I wonder, do you have that? Because if you do, you can draw near to God with full assurance. You know, when you think about God's holiness, you don't run away. No, you run to him. It just excites you, makes you want to reorder your life around him. And see, that's what it means, that God is holy. Come and worship our holy God. In fact, notice the very last line, for the Lord our God is holy. See, verse 3 said, holy is he. Verse 5 said, holy is he. But now it says, the Lord our God is holy. And he is our God because of his Son, because we can come in through Jesus.